I was afraid that what if I try all of these different modalities of treatment, whatever they are, I didn't even know what they were. I couldn't even tell you if you would have asked me what at the time I had, you know, raging PTSD and survivor's guilt and moral injury and all this stuff. I couldn't even tell you what it stood for. So I had no idea. I had no context for what I was going through other than there's strong people who go to war and come home. And then there's weak people who go to war and can't deal with it. And I'm not a weak person. So I have to figure this out and get through it. But I was ultimately afraid of the idea, what if I go to get help? What if I try everything and I'm still sick? Then I'm hopeless. I didn't have the guts to say, hey, we're gonna, we're gonna do whatever we can to figure this out. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't work, but we're gonna try it. Nor did I have the guts or really um, just even the wherewithal or awareness to understand how sick I was, to raise my hand and say, I'm not doing well and I can't fix this on my own. That was Stephen Elliott. And today on the podcast, we hear his story of fighting in Afghanistan, his involvement with the Pat Tillman story, and his struggle with PTSD and substance abuse after returning home from the battlefield his story of healing, and his story of passion now to be involved with other soldiers who struggle with the very same things. Uh, Steven's a reformer, and that's why we're so excited to feature him on our very first Nations Media podcast. I know you'll be enriched and encouraged by our conversation. I grew up in central Kansas and then went to school at uh, Oral Roberts University in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And then um, I began basic training in the Army um, three weeks after I graduated uh, from business school in uh, May of 2003. So that took me from Tulsa to sunny Fort Benning, Georgia for the better part of six months. And then um, after completing uh, all of my training there, uh, I found myself assigned to uh, 2nd Ranger Battalion, uh, which is uh, just down the road at uh, what was Fort Lewis, what has become uh, J- JBLM. Yeah. So that's how I, that's how I wounded. That's the that's my journey from central to east to back to the west coast to uh, to that area. So this was this area. the ROTC program or was it? No. So I had. Um, I kind of looked, went back and forth on that. Um, I had. Uh, uh, talk to uh, one thing I knew how to do is I knew how to do research. <laughs> so I researched my options uh, more so than the army recruiter I think was used to when I walked into his office for the first time. But um, the upshot of it was uh, it was uh, 2000 at the time it was going into my senior year. This was uh, 2002. Uh, 9-11 was, you know, not even 12 months old. And uh, in, you know, kind of classic, I think, youthful exuberance, um, I was afraid the war was going to be over. And uh, looking back on that now, um, I mean, that's um, tragically hilarious, the fact that that was not the case. That was not something I had to worry about. Right. But for me, it was, um, I, I wanted to fight um, and I wanted to be contributing in that way. And uh, when you looked at the path to um, a special operations unit or an SF unit from an officer route, um, it takes many more years uh, versus going enlisted. And so effectively, I did the math and, and looked at it and said, you know, if I, if I don't get hurt, if I don't recycle out of any segment of the training, um, I can get into uh, uh, effectively Special Operations Command via the Ranger Regiment within about six to nine months from wow. joining. And then um, having talked to folks who had sort of served in those communities and other communities around them, 
it seemed like um, if I wanted to do my four years and that's it, that serving in that community, uh, I would be proud of that. That that would be like, hey, I didn't spend two and a half years in a schoolhouse only to figure out that I didn't want to do this. Right. But that, no, I could I could say, hey, I left as a E5 sergeant, Rangers, and I'm proud of that. Or if I said, hey, I really want to do something more, you can kind of, um, not, not to be too exaggerate too much, but to some degree it's true, you can sort of write your own ticket. So it's like, hey, you've, you've been to regiment, um, you've deployed as a ranger, you want to go be SF, go be SF. You want to go do any one of a myriad of things. Um, that's a, a, a trip to include becoming an officer. Um, that's a great starting point. So it just felt like it, it was the best expression of, of, you know, what I wanted to offer and, and, and also gave me options in my career as well. That's amazing. Talk to me, September 11th. It's crazy. I mean, growing up in the late seventies and eighties, like mm -hmm. hearing about the Vietnam war, that was just, you know, mm -hmm. 15 years prior to my growing up, mm -hmm. it seemed like an eternity ago. And now if you're growing up today, like September 11th mm -hmm. was, was that, but for me, it was a very memorable moment, yeah. obviously for us all. Tell yeah. us where you were, what, what was that moment like for you? I remember it was a, um, I was at ORU. It was my junior year of school. Um, I remember that being announced at a chapel service. And I think the initial, for me, like the initial reaction, which you have the benefit of time to be able to kind of unpack, you know, a little bit of that. At first it was, it felt really far away. I'm sitting there in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Um, and it's just like, you have, you have no way to contextualize it. Like, how do you contextualize that level of tragedy. And, and then it's also like, we don't know what we don't know in the moment either. Um, you hear that a plane has crashed. Right. Um, then you hear a second one and you didn't have, this makes us sound old here, Joel. We didn't have, you know, people live tweeting or no live Twitter, streaming what was going yeah, on. No social media, it was all news breaking. Yeah, it really was. So it was like, try and find a cable television somewhere to watch what's happening. And so, for me, it went from like, well, what, what is this exactly to then understanding and kind of being in shock as to the gravity of it. And then I think the most surprising thing about it was starting to realize just how small my world really was. Mm. Um, you know, I'm 20 years old, going to a small Christian school in eastern Oklahoma. What connections could I possibly have to New York City? Well, at the very least, all of a sudden, I have classmates and friends who are on the phone talking wow. to family and talking yeah. to, you realize the connections. I had a, a good friend of mine from my freshman year who that day was in the World Trade Center building um, going through training as a, as a new financial advisor and he made it out. But very, very quickly, like within 24 hours, something that felt um, two-dimensional on a screen tragic um, felt very violating. It felt very personal. Um, in a way that I would have never, I would have never expected. That's amazing. I remember my wife and I, we, uh, got married September 1st in honeymooned in Mexico. And I, we flew home the night of the 10th. Wow. We might even arrived on the early, the 11th wow. in the wee hours, but just waking up to mm. a new marriage, a whole new world. <laughs> it was just, it was just, it was just radical. Wow. Um, was that a catalyst for you to, to th start thinking military or had you already made your mind up that you wanted to be military? I had made my mind up that I didn't want to be military. So for me, um, the biggest, the biggest male influence in my life was my mom's dad, my grandfather. And, um, my folks had divorced shortly after I was born and, and he became in a lot of ways, I had, I had a lot of really great, healthy family around me, but he became really kind of a de facto, um, dad for me. 
And he had served um, in World War II a year and a half on the Italian front. And so as a young kid, I had always seen sort of, I, I joke with people, I would say growing up in central Kansas around people like my, my grandpa, I would always say as a kid, I thought every man over the age of 60 was two things, a veteran of World War II and Lutheran. Because it was essentially that's how it was. That's how it was, right? And so, like, yeah, everyone gets dressed up on Memorial Day and does their thing and and honors those who've fallen as someone who's fallen. So I saw that as a young kid, as very much uh, I didn't process it that way consciously, but very much a gateway to manhood. Mm. And then I want to say grew out of that, but shifted courses. And I was you know dead set on going to law school, becoming an attorney, and you know doing whatever. Had no really no designs on military service. And then 9-11 happened and I just could not, I just couldn't shake it. Um, And, um, you know, people, you know, they, you know, they'll tell you, um, you know, thank you for your service, which is fine. Or or they'll, they'll look at you and say, what a, you know, uh, they'll compliment you on the choice for that. And I honestly, like, I felt like if I didn't do that, I was just going to bust. Like, it was not even something that I felt like I didn't have a choice in a way. And not from some sort of self-righteous sort of way, but just in a, it was just in me. And I felt like between me and whatever was on the other side of that, whatever life held for me, um, I felt like I need to spend some time serving. And I think there was a lot of things wrapped up into that that were... um, both good and bad, um, both honorable and egotistical. Yeah. Um, you know, there is the element of our nation is at war. Um, this is our generation's fight, not dissimilar to my own grandfather in, you know, 1942-43 when, you know, when he elected to serve. And so you view it through those lenses. Um, but then you also view it through the lenses of, um, I, I want to prove to myself in the world that I'm a man. Mm. And if I do this in in my... 21, 22 year old brain, you, uh, which is, I mean, that leads to that, this pedestal leads to so many other problems on the other side of war, but you, you have the false belief, at least I did that, um, serving in combat, particularly serving in special operations unit in combat is the manliest thing that you can do, which is ridiculous, but that's what you think. And I think in, in large respects, that's what our culture tells us. And so then you have, um, you have a lot of folks, including myself, that to some degree are set up for failure um, by their own expectations and their own cultural norms as far as uh, what is required to be um, a man. That's mm-hmm. a um, that's a pretty divisive topic these days. Right. Um, what is what is masculinity versus toxic masculinity versus mm-hmm. feminism? All of these conversations um, they're interwoven in our society in various ways. But I think for me, it was very much there was a selfless desire to serve. But there also was a very much a selfish desire to see what what can I prove to the world about who I am and and what I can accomplish. Talk to me about Ranger School. I mean, every I think red blooded American dreams of becoming a Navy SEAL. Or I mean, look at all the shows on Netflix. It's yeah, a, it's it really captures our culture's youth mm-hmm. and and. Uh, we love the idea of fighting for something. We love the idea of winning, and yes. um, and special forces always wins. Yes, you know. And so, <laughs> how did you choose uh, Rangers School over, uh, you know, becoming a Navy SEAL or, or any other special force? I think I had I already had a cult, kind of a cultural affinity for the Army in general, just because, um, you know, my great grandfather. Um, he was he served as a medic in World War One, 
in the army. Um, his son, my grandfather, served in the army in World War II. His brother, my great uncle, was in the army in Korea. Uh, second cousin was a green, you know. So it's like pretty much everyone generational. In, yeah, everyone in my family who had military service, there was army, and so um, I think there was a piece of that. And um, yeah, I think the idea of um, I can swim, but it's not my favorite, candidly. <laughs> so um, the Navy SEALs, I, I just never felt, I never felt an attraction to that culture, um, the naval culture, um, high, obviously high regard, uh, high degree respect for, for those folks, but um, felt like, yeah, the Army community in general um, was more a fit for me. And then, um, yeah, the Ranger selection phase. So I never actually went to Ranger school. So that's a peculiarity within the Ranger regiment is in order to get into the regiment, you have to go through what is, you know, the SEALs do a much better job of marketing and making documentaries than the Army does. So people are more familiar with BUDS. Right. Um, the Army, the, the Ranger equivalent of that is uh, what's now called RASP, which is the Ranger Assessment and Selection Phase. Okay. So that's what you go through after you've completed basic, I was an infantryman, so then you complete infantry school, then you go to airborne school to become jump qualified, then you go to RASP. Um, at the time, it was called RIP when I was doing it. But then once you complete that, you don the tan beret, which is the ranger's headgear, and you are a member of the 75th Ranger Regiment with the expectation that at some point in order to progress in your career, you will go to ranger school, which is a, a separate leadership school that the regiment uses to effectively vet its leaders. Gotcha. So the idea is you're a ranger by virtue of going through RASP and being in the unit, but if you want to stay a ranger and actually progress in the unit, you're going to have to go to ranger school and get your tab. Um, and so that's uh, most of the culture, most of the hazing in, in ranger regiment, uh, a lot of it is built around um, providing very clear incentives for people to, hey, you're here, congratulations, you're not done quite yet. And so then ranger school happens a little bit further on down the road. Gotcha. But, um, but yeah, the process, I mean, just from what I've seen, having not done BUDS, um, it's essentially both BUDS and RASP are... They're non-gentleman courses, meaning um, you volunteer, but um, you're not going to be treated with a tremendous amount of respect by the cadre. And they're, it's completely discretionary, meaning they'll, they put forth criteria, like if you can, here's the standards. Uh, but I saw many guys who, meet the, who met the standards that the cadre just didn't like, hmm. um, and they just got rid of them. And so it's a very, um, yeah, it's a very intense environment. Being from San Diego, I've, I've got know a lot of kids uh, kind of through our youth program at church, mm -hmm. who, you know, choose that route. I've got a good friend right now uh, who just, he was days from completing it and he got MRSA in his knee. And they're like, if you don't stop right now, it's, it's amputation. And uh, I just, oh I just gosh. talked to him and he's, he's like, uh, like, how do you feel? You got to start over. He goes, it's only pain. Once you do, once you learn that it's only pain, mm -hmm. you can do anything. And yeah. uh, I mean, there's a lot of talk right now on podcasts, obviously with Jocko and, and right. everybody. It's it's everyone's really drawn to um, that culture. Did you feel it was? Did you feel like, man, I fit in here. This is my world. I eventually no, but I think initially I was so intoxicated with the idea that I could do it that I was just super happy about that. You were driven. I was just driven. Yeah. And so for me, just my personality type, um, 
very achievement oriented and, you know, those sorts of things. I think what I realized over time, well, and then the other thing is, I'll say this, you spend so much time, at least I did initially, thinking about, can I just get into the unit? Because what's the point of thinking about much else beyond that? You're thinking on the very next goal. You don't think about, nor do you have a lot of context for what it's like to actually be in the unit. And so it dawned, I remember it dawning on me, you know, on the flight, you know, the day I graduated, you know, uh, RIP is what it was called, the Ranger Indoctrination Program. Graduate that, you know, at 10 o'clock in the morning at Fort Benning, Georgia, and you have a plane ticket in your hand for Seattle-Tacoma International Airport. So that night, you know, you know you're landing in SeaTac. Um, and I remember on the flight um, thinking like, it, it began to dawn on me that the reason why, because there, there's a there's a lot of hazing that goes on. There's a lot of things that it's just like you guys are just being whatever, mean to be mean. Yes, yeah. and and just because you're trying to you're trying to see how bad you actually want to be in this unit. Right. I get that, um, but then it begins to dawn. It began to dawn on me that the reason why the selection is so hard um, is because the job is actually really hard. Mm. <laughs> so it's not just. Can you put through our get through our hazing BS so that you can come and you know sip scotch and whiskey and you know have in the club? This isn't a seniors versus freshmen no initiation, not that at all. And so then, as you're then you're actually doing the job, you're just like, oh, the reason why they deprived us of sleep is because you get deprived of sleep a lot. There's no sleep on the battlefield. No, and so then what I began to realize, kind of to answer your question, over time, I would describe myself and maybe some of my comrades would you know have their own assessment but i would kind of describe myself as kind of like a like a b b minus ranger like i could do everything that i needed to do i could meet the standards but nobody was looking at me and saying wow that guy's going to delta right like that guy's and then when you're around those guys and then you see the guys who are just like their soul is fed by being in the unit you know guys who Seriously, guys who live in Tacoma, they'd ride their bike 20 miles to work to be a ranger all day and then ride home. And they were just like kids in a candy store. They just loved it. And then you begin to realize, like, there's some cool things about this, but most of it kind of sucks. It's hard. And I'll do it. But this isn't my – it's better – it's like uh, certain hometowns, it's a better place to be from than a better place to be. Yeah. Like, it's a co- great job to talk about. <laughs> uh, and most of the time, it was just a pretty difficult job to do. Yeah. And so I, I learned that over time, you know, relatively short time that I was in the regiment that, yeah, this was probably not, if I stay in the army, it's probably not going to be here. So your book is War Story. Um, man, I've, I've got it all marked up. Uh, my wife just read it. <laughs> she she's a, She's a reader. And uh, she was in tears. Um, mm. It's it's a very incredibly moving story. Mm. Um, I guess you know the uh, the crux of your story is um, is your uh, interactions with Pat Tillman. Yeah. Uh, you know, after September 11th, he was a, a hero to yeah. our culture. He was um, NFL player. Uh, chose mm-hmm. to walk away from that and enlist. And uh, I mean, he he looked the part, square jaw, just mm-hmm. he looked like what you were just describing, someone who would ride their bike 20 miles right. just to participate. Um, and uh, so, so tell me, I mean, we'll get into your story in a minute, but just writing your narrative down, was that therapeutic? Was it painful? Uh, was it, was it a joy to, to, uh, 
to embark on a project this massive. Yeah. Um, it was definitely a journey just, you know, um, yeah, I mean the events when we were on a deployment that happened 15 years ago, um, going on 15 years, which is, um, hard to believe that that much time has passed. And so, you know, the idea that it's still rather surreal that there even is a book because the idea that for most of those 15 years, the idea that I would even talk about it, um, was anathema to me, just like, no, thanks. Um, it was mostly, uh, an exercise to, um, keep that identity, um, which we can talk about more in a minute, um, sort of, I didn't want to talk about it um, because my military service, you know, was really more of a mark of shame and, and guilt for me than it was anything else. And so, yeah, being on, um, I mean, the Lord has just brought us through so much and he had to bring me through a place of healing so that I could even write it down. Mm. And I say write it down very deliberately because the story itself is not something that I wrote. Um, I feel like I was given the opportunity with words to try and reveal something that's already there. Um, it wasn't up to me to create the characters. It wasn't up to me to uh, create the narrative. It was just to try and literally write it down in a way that was compelling and in a way that was honest and hopefully in a way that's helpful um, so that it's not just a um, a tearjerker for the mm -hmm. sake of being a tearjerker because, um, you know, I don't think our world needs any more of that. We've got enough things that we can, we can cry over, but, um, but yeah, so the process of writing was when we actually, when it actually came to that point, which, um, took a while, um, it was, um, it was really life-giving and it was, um, in many respects, especially revisiting some of the harder moments. Um, it was, um, I just found myself being really grateful for, the work that had been done in my own heart because in the past revisiting some of those moments would have taken me to places that um, were not good. Um, and so I'm, I'm, I'm thankful that if there was a book that needed to be written, I'm thankful that it took this long for it to happen um, because it would not have been good for me um, any earlier. Uh, the timing of it, it was not my timing and it was perfect. <laughs> so, yeah. So Pat Tillman, uh, I mean, NFL player, so obviously mm -hmm. so much exposure. Every person in America knows who this guy is. They they know his story. He's he's a hero for basically living out your your story, saying yeah. yes to the call of saying yeah. we want to we want to participate in in the wrongs that have been inflicted on our country. We'll, we want to go make it right. That's right. And uh, and so the news breaks that that he's been killed in action. And uh, I remember thinking like, wow, that's that just adds to the story in, mm -hmm. in a huge way. I mean, mm -hmm. someone who would be, you know, that's the whole thing of the military being willing, willing to die for your country. Yeah. Um, that's a radical thought. If you really chew on it and, and think about it. Yes. And, and he did. Mm -hmm. um, and I remember news breaking all around and then it was, what was it a month later? Mm -hmm. uh, they uncovered that it was friendly fire. Yeah. Um, and, uh, so you were on, you were in his battalion? Platoon. Platoon. So yeah, um, Alpha Company, if there's four companies in second battalion, and then uh, we were both in Alpha Company. And then we were both, uh, along with Kevin Tillman, his brother, uh, all three of us were in the same platoon, about 35 guys or so. And then Kevin, Pat's brother, and I were in the same squad. Um, and so Kevin and I, we worked with each other every day uh, pretty closely. And then... Um, it was most of your training and activities um, at the very least or at the platoon level. So our platoon was doing 
all sorts of exercises together. And then our squads would split off and do stuff um, on their own. So, yeah. You mentioned in the book the first time meeting Pat and he seemed familiar, but you couldn't quite place him. Yeah. Uh, when did it click for you who, who he was and that you were going to be working alongside of him in, in, yeah. in the battlefield? It didn't click for a while because I didn't have, um, I was like growing up, you know, middle school, high school. I mean, I was the guy who, you know, eat their cereal and watch sports center four times on a Saturday morning, you know? So like I could tell you just ridiculous facts that nobody needs to know about, you know, every sport that was covered. I love, love, love sports in general. Then I went to college and I didn't even have a TV. I just worked all the time and, you know, studied. And so I didn't have really any media exposure um, leading up to his service. I vaguely remember hearing about some football guy who signed up, um, but I couldn't have told you his, his name even. The main thing that stuck out, but, but I knew that, like I knew that some guy had done that. Um, and um, the main thing about Pat was just the fact that uh, most of the guys in regiment um, and a lot of types of units, um, because of the the lifestyle, um, they look a lot more like me, which is they look like they just came off the soccer pitch. Right. Um, Pat did not look that way. <laughs> so looks like GI Joe. Yeah, he's you know he's built um, and you know super fit, obviously. But so that I mean, the first time I saw him when we were waiting to get our platoon assignments, um, you know, if that was the, there's not a lot of big guys in regiment. That is surprising yeah. when you meet Navy SEALs and you meet special forces guys, they don't look like no. what the media makes them out to no. look like. I, I see down in San Diego, you'll see mm -hmm. all the, the guys at Pendleton, you yeah. know, uh, the Marines, just the, the, the jarheads and they're, you know, they're so buff and uh -huh. they've got the tattoos and they're running on the beach and they've got their face masks, you know, those oxygen <laughs> preventers. And and then you'll see a guy with like, you know, just normal looking guy with a beard and, you know, maybe even long hair. And he's running on the beach like a robot. Yes. He's just in the soft sand going and I'm going, yep. that's a seal. Yep. And um, it, it's amazing. But Pat was, I mean, he looked like an NFL player. Yeah, he did. Dude's huge. He did. I'm sure he was smaller than he was when he was playing, but still, you know, relative to, to the rest of us. Um, yeah, he was an anomaly. And so that was, that in of itself was unusual, but I didn't have, but like working with him, I guess I didn't have, um, like I didn't have any of the expectation or buildup associated with, you know, his choice to serve. So for me, like Pat was like, oh, that's cool. Like he, he was number one, he and Kevin both, I was one of the, which is ridiculous to say it, but at 20, the time I got to regiment, I was, um, see that was, I was 22. Um, I was one of the older guys in the platoon, which is nuts because um, you have a lot of guys who they finish high school and they go straight into the army. Oh. And if you're good and you get through it, you can be, you know, at regiment, you know, by the time you're 18, 19. So I was already one of the older guys in the unit. Pat and Kevin were that much older than me. So they were like these sages. Um, and we were, uh, other than our platoon leader, who's a lieutenant and West Point grad, uh, Pat, Kevin, and I, I believe we were the only other three guys in the platoon who had a bachelor's degree. So the three of us in general were sort of like, for whatever that's worth, um, seen as having had more life experience than other folks. So there was immediately some resonance with that, just like, oh, you, you guys have gone off and done some other things before doing the army. And so there was some commonality there. But for me, Pat was just like, he was just a good guy that we all worked with, you know, and, you know, same with Kevin, um, just good dudes, you know, that did their job and kind of kept their head down and um, were really pleasant to work with. I mean, that's really, that was my, my interaction with them for the most part. 
So here you are, you're in the battlefield um, and you're, you're deployed, mm-hmm. you're, you're there. I mean, you're fighting the battle that, mm-hmm. that you know, caused, you know, as, as a result of September 11th. Yeah. Um, walk us through that day that, that Pat was killed. Yeah. So that was April 22nd, 2004. Um, we hadn't been in country very long. Uh, we had been deployed as part of um, what they call a spring surge. So mountain passes start to, to open up and, um, you know, folks start to move a lot more freely, um, particularly from the tribal regions of Pakistan in and out of Afghanistan. And so we were doing, uh, uh, we were doing raids and patrols um, along the Pakistan, uh, Afghan-Pakistan border. And I sort of had the idea that, you know, at that time, you know, we're two and a half years into having some form of American presence in Afghanistan. Um, I just had the assumption that, well, we've already looked everywhere because our mission template was to, to go find Osama bin Laden, uh, which in hindsight was um, not super accurate because he wasn't there um, right. because we have this place called the tribal regions of Pakistan uh, where you could sit on an OP and observation post and watch people who would be quote unquote bad guys move around and do their thing. But you can't do anything. Can't do anything unless our rules of engagement were if they would have to be in Afghanistan and then we could only go into Pakistan if we made and then maintained contact with them while in pursuit to Pakistan. And you can imagine how many times that happens. So um, that was pretty frustrating, but we were... We was, were that, was that frustrating immediately? Were you... I mean, you're you're brand new to the battlefield and there's this rule that yeah. you know the bad guy's out there and there's some line... Uh-huh. that you can't cross to go do your job. Yeah, it was, I remember one of the first times, because, I mean, as a, as a um, on your first deployment, you kind of don't know what you don't know. You're just basically just watching all the other guys, just, just like, well, I guess he's holding his weapon like that. I can do that and not look like an idiot. You know what I mean? Like yeah. you're, you're literally just taking cues. From trying people, to fit in. Trying to fit in. Like, I don't want to be that guy. And um, I remember we had just pulled in after doing some patrol um, on the border, depending on whose Garmin you were looking at, we were in Pakistan or Afghanistan, just that's where we were at. And then the call came in that there was a, a company size element moving towards um, uh, 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 an installation of the Afghan military force, AMF, and that we were to go augment them and just be prepared to, you know, for, to get hit. And so we did that. We dug in uh, at night. We were up all night you know, waiting to get shot at and nothing happened. Um, but that was a position that, I mean, they would get rocketed and they would get hit pretty much every week. So we just happened, I guess, not to get lucky that night. But um, then it became clear, like it, the following subsequent days, it was just like you literally could look out across the plains, you know, past the, the, the observation post you're at. And yeah, you could see people, you know, moving and doing, you know, their thing unmolested. And so it felt like, I thought we were the types of guys that you sent after those types of guys. Mm. So what's the deal? Um, Backwards. It began to feel more and more like, so we're here to hopefully stumble on some intelligence that can lead us to high-value targets of some sort, um, or we're here maybe to get shot at, and then that gives us people to pursue. But it definitely, the, the feeling was that we were our aggressiveness was curtailed. Um, and that was, um, with my limited perspective, um, 
you don't sit around and talk about that. You don't sit down with your squad leader, platoon sergeant, and and, and sharpshoot the battalion commander's strategy. You know that's not how it works. Right. Right. <laughs> you shut up and you do your job. Um, but then with your peers, you're sort of just like, what are we doing? Like, what's what's happening here? Like, we just Bin Laden was not in that village. I'm pretty sure he's not going to be. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. um, so then you begin to wonder. Um, it's a lot of work to get there. It's a lot of work just to deploy. It's, I mean, obviously the risk and all that. And so then you, you begin to feel a little bit like, um, yeah, what are we doing here? And um, is this the best use of these resources? Um, and at the end of the day, you have such a limited perspective that um, in some respects you're as a, in this case, an army ranger on the ground, you have tremendous perspective that most people don't have. But at the same time, you have a horrible perspective because you're the guy, you're literally as microscopic within the battlefield as you can possibly be. And you don't have perspective of, of others. It doesn't mean that, you know, those in higher authority are always right, but um, it's easy to dismiss your own perspective as just being narrow and just, and, and at the end of the day, it doesn't even matter <laughs> because you have to wake up and do whatever you're told to do anyway. So, you know, why work yourself in a tizzy um, trying to, question it too much when you're in the midst of it so yeah it was it was frustrating so you guys your unit is is moving through a mountain pass and uh and you guys split up yeah so we had it it had been a frustrating so after um spending some time sort of augmenting various amf posts and uh doing patrols um ultimately we had had one of the vehicles in our we'd been on mounted patrols so riding around and basically stripped down versions of of humvees and one of those vehicles um, had mechanical issues that was persistent and was ultimately, you know, non operable. Uh, we had tried to get replacement parts flown to us, and for whatever reason that I still don't know uh, logistically, that wasn't possible. I mean, we could get resupplied um, with other things, but for whatever reason, they just didn't have the part we needed. And so, effectively, what happened was having this broken vehicle was putting us further and further behind our timeline um, of clearing operations and, you know, hitting other grid squares that, you know, higher wanted us to hit. And so um, ultimately we were given the order to tow the vehicle out, um, which given the nature of the quote unquote roads we were on uh, felt a little ridiculous because we were driving, if we were driving, it was mostly on these uh, very, very rocky wadis that are just in, in between mountains. And so we tried that for not even a day, and it just, you know, tore the tore the machine apart. Yeah, I've seen the video. It looks yeah. like it's like even being on horseback would be difficult. Be terrible. You're, you're trying to. It's it's like a four by four. Yeah. So you could road. literally watch like tow bars broke, tow straps broke. Everything. You could literally watch the terrain. It looked like at times it was literally eating the vehicle, just chewing it up. Um, that's how because it was not anywhere close to a hardball road. So then we were stuck. Um, How exposed did you feel this whole time? Because it, exposed. It looks like the scene from Indiana Jones when yes, when the enemies <laughs> yeah. are up on the hillside yeah. and you're just—I mean, were you just looking up to yeah, the horizon so we, the whole time? So we set, um, we you know made a perimeter in our vehicles, pulled security while our PL was on the radio, our platoon leader, um, uh, Lieutenant Utlout, um, basically trying to figure out what's next. What we were asking for, we were asking for two, one of two things. One, allow us to pull the sensitive equipment off this vehicle um, and just let guys jump in other vehicles. And we got enough C4, we'll blow it up. 
just be done with it. Like by the time we get it back to the fob, <laughs> um, there's not going to be a whole lot left for you to retrieve or get us a, a helicopter to sling load it out. Um, but we are, the, the upshot of it was we understand there's frustration because we're not fully operational as platoon. So help us get fully operational by, by dealing with this broken down vehicle. How far are you from your base where we're about, I, I don't, um, off the top of my head, I don't remember as a crow flies, how many miles, but we were, we'd be, we were still a solid, probably like three hour drive to hardball road and then another three to five hour drive on hardball road. So as the crow flies for a bird, you know, maybe a, you know, 30, 45 minute flight, um, not far in that regard, but on ground, um, sure. a number of hours. And- Especially yeah. because of the train. Yeah. So we sat there, you know, listening to the banner back and forth and basically uh, over the objections of RPL, uh, they said, we want the vehicle back and you get the vehicle back to us and that's your job. And at the same time, because you're behind, um, there is another objective that we need you to hit tonight. And so um, RPL objected to that again because splitting of an element, uh, particularly in that terrain, you just create... You reduce your combat effectiveness, obviously, uh, but then you also create some communication issues that can arise because quite literally with the radio systems, if you don't have some point-to-point, you're not going to be able to communicate. So we sat there for pretty much the better part of a day watching crowds of Afghan locals pretty much gather. Um, And that that was the first time where it felt like we had lost whatever initiative that we had which was very unusual feeling because um, we're rangers. And so that's what you do is you have the initiative. And that's what you do is primarily you fight at night. Um, and and you, you're losing ground. Were there, were, there, were there cell phones back then? Did the villagers have cell phones? I don't phones? know. Do I, don't know. Oh, I think man. there were some, but it was definitely, you know, at the same time that you're trying to, you know, I'm on my weapon, you know, you're trying to play it cool. You yeah. know, you're not staring down your, your gun barrel at a kid or anything like that. But it's very tense. And the frustration over, for us as a platoon, the frustration over, we could see the vehicle that was being destroyed by the terrain. And the idea that we had to drag this thing back just felt increasingly ridiculous. That was the order that was given. And so um, basically, our platoon leader was told, you can do that. Um, my understanding, you can do this, or you cannot be a platoon leader for second platoon anymore. Um, and so um, he did that, split the elements, split the platoon. With one element's job, one half of the platoon was charged with escorting this vehicle back to a hardball road where an actual military, basically, wrecker would come and get it. Um, and then the other half of the platoon uh, was charged with clearing uh, another objective. And so I was in the platoon, I was in the half of the platoon that was escorting the vehicle back to the hardball road. And then Pat was in the, the element of the platoon that was to go and clear this other objective that night. So by the time that was all decided, by the time it was clear that this is what we have to do, and by the time uh, we then hired locals um, driving what we call a Jenga truck to then haul and pull um, the busted down Humvee. And so, which it felt like at a certain point, which we had no other choice. So then it felt like this was getting more ridiculous by the moment um, in, in terms of, you know, our mission effectively having devolved into not just being a really probably the, the most highly armed wrecking crew in, you know, the world um, to then having to rely on locals that we didn't know sure. 
um, to then lead us out um, into that movement. And then we started our movement at the worst possible time of the day, which is as dusk was becoming to come. Uh, uh, come on. So um, lighting is getting bad, but it's not getting bad enough to where night vision does anything for you. So then we moved out um, and um, the serial one, which is what Pat's element was called, they moved out, they left, they went to go do their thing. And then some some amount of time, some minutes later, then uh, we left. And I was manning a M240 Bravo machine gun in the uh, the Humvee that was immediately behind the Jenga truck driver and the busted down vehicle. And so then, um, yeah, as that, we, there was miscommunication. There was, we were going to take one route, but then the Jenga truck driver advised us to take another route. Um, and we took that route unbeknownst to me and most of the guys, the route that we ended up taking was the route that serial one had already taken. So we ended up following them down a canyon, um, the likes of which at certain points, um, I wasn't even sure if our vehicle would fit. Um, That's how narrow uh, it was. And by that point, it's dark. The rocks are gray. Um, We're joking with each other in the vehicle just to cut the tension about how you know what this is, about how easy it would be to do X, Y, and Z. And uh, just kind of crossing your fingers and, and hoping you make through that that terrain when you have all these other things that we have just, as a unit, completely failed at in terms of command and control and timing of movement. And it just felt very much like the tail was wagging the dog. Like, so what is the sense of urgency that you have to have boots on the ground by dusk, which was the order uh, for Pat's element? Um, why is this? I understand not, you know, uh, not treating your equipment lightly. It's critical. Um, but why can't you trust the word of the officer on the ground um, as opposed to trying to command and control from the fob? So it was a lot of frustration. And then um, as the canyon widened out, um, IED goes off, boulders start flowing, um, drivers in the Jenga truck jump out, and the canyon is so narrow that we can't maneuver around them. So we're stuck. And so you sit there for what feels like a very long period of time. Um, pretty, I mean, I remember feeling very, um, with complete assurance that I would die here. Um, and I've wow. never, I never had that feeling um, about anything. But I had the feeling just, just looking at the sum total of events and decisions that had led us there, um, looking at the terrain that we were in, um, if, if we were uh, initiating that ambush, it's shooting fish in a barrel. There's no reason why um, any of us. You wouldn't be victorious being mm, on the hillside as opposed to being. Yeah, I mean, and it was too easy. You have you have literally a series of vehicles that are trapped in a canyon. Um, I mean, it, it would be far too easy to to completely decimate that. Did the group. IED did it did it bl- completely block block your path? Was it like an avalanche of mount of rocks coming down? Or it was behind me. Um, it was to my. I was. I'm on the back of the vehicle um, on a 240 is a belt fed machine gun, okay. and it's attached on a swing arm to the back right portion of the vehicle so i'm sort of almost facing to like our like four or five o'clock okay in the vehicle so i can look back i see the incandescent light you see the light first before you hear it um and then the explosion happens right at the base of a massive you know size of a volkswagen beetle boulder and you're just watching the path of that boulder hoping it doesn't hit anybody um it lands between vehicles didn't hurt anyone. Oh my gosh! Um, but then at that point, you know that um, that you're in, you're in a bad space, and so then 
within, you know, a few moments, um, small arms fire starts happening, um, other explosions start taking place. And then, you know, we start keying off of um, our leaders in the vehicle, myself, and then uh, my gunner who was on a 50 cal in our vehicle, we had a lot of firepower. And so we were looking for targets to engage. Just muzzle flashes. It's all pretty much all you can see. You yeah. don't see anybody. So. You don't see anybody. So, yeah. Did you feel you were trained for that moment? Was this the first time you'd been yep. used used a gun yep. in battle? Yep. Yep. The first time. Did you feel like, I'm ready for this, I'm trained for this, and did you, or were you just like, I would just be freaked out right yep. now? I felt like, so, I, I can't speak for other parts of the military, I can speak for being an Army Ranger. Um, they prepare you very, 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 very well, very realistic training. So, I mean, we'd done live fire exercises um, that were, you know, very realistic multiple times. You fire, you know, you think, you know, shooting a weapon is cool, and it is, not when you have to go to a range and fire 10,000 rounds. Um, like the amount of rounds that I put through in training that I put through my weapon, shooting at human silhouettes, I, I can't even tell you, right. a lot. So um, in that respect, yes. What no amount of training I think can prepare you for is the fact that we as human beings are not wired to kill other human beings. Mm. We're just not. Yeah. Um, and that is certainly not a test of masculinity. And so in that moment, for me, I was essentially um, building new muscle memory um, and building new pathways, mm -hmm. as it were, that would enable me to fire and, and possibly kill another human. But my initial reaction at first was complete and utter confusion wow. because it made no sense to me. It made no sense that people that I don't know want are, to kill you, want to kill me and my friends. You and, talk about this in the book. You, yeah. you talk about facing an enemy that that wants to kill you, and that's something that that you just can't perceive unless no. you've been there. I mean, I I grew up in and loved war movies and everything, mm -hmm. and just um, working on a documentary placed me in Iraq and, yeah. and being on the front lines with ISIS, yes. and mm. you know, uh, being bombed and being shot at. I'm just going, this is nuts, uh -huh. you know, like just the fact that they're, they, they want to end my life and a suicide bomber. They found out America's Americans were in this certain location. They sent a suicide bomber in and one of my Peshmerga friends sent me a photo of, of just him holding up a leg Jeez. and he goes, you just missed it. Jeez. They came for oh you. And I, I couldn't wrap my mind around the fact that someone ended their life just trying to end mine. And so yeah. I can't even fathom being in a position where you're, you're trained to fight back. I'm just there to document. You're right. there to engage this threat. Yep. And and here you are. So you're you're shooting at silhouettes. Um, what takes place from there? Yeah. So um, eventually, you get um, uh, leadership in our in our serial. Um, you know, basically at gunpoint, get. Jenga truck drivers back in the vehicle and get that moving. So um, eventually we're moving again. And we stopped a couple times to engage other targets as we were coming out of the canyon. But um, that initial sense, you know, the initial sense of confusion, then you're just keying off of, really, you're just keying off of people who've, uh, who are more senior than you. Yeah. And then um, a switch is flipped. Um, once for me, once I fired the first, you know, three round volley, um, I, I went cold um, in, in my heart, in my mind. Um, it was that new pathway 
um, was established um, where uh, I could, uh, I, I knew that I was shooting. Um, I wasn't just closing my eyes, pulling the trigger. I was aiming and deliberately trying to kill another human. Mm. Um, and, and that changes you. And so, um, but as the, as we were moving through it, a couple things start dawning on you. Number one, we didn't really take our cereal for whatever reason, didn't really take effective fire. There was no rounds kicking up around us. There was no explosions happening close to our vehicle. No one had been hit. We're moving through it. And so the initial sense of assurance that we're done um, changes to we actually might be okay. And then as we gained speed and came out of the canyon, there was um, muzzle flashes coming from an individual. Um, at this point, it's almost 6.30 at night. Uh, the sun is set already. So whatever we're seeing to our, the right side of the vehicle is all backlit, you know, whatever light that there is. And um, our, our squad leader in the vehicle, uh, he engaged that individual, um, shot him six times. Um, we keyed off of that fire. Um, and I fired a few other volleys at um, shapes um, that I assumed, I could only assume were the enemy uh, because um, the idea that there were friendlies anywhere around us that was not in our vehicles was just completely uh, impossible to me. Um, and so... Because there's no communication. You've no lost, you're, you're, in a, you're in a valley. There's no, there's no AWAC above you no. that's bouncing signal. No, we don't, we don't know. Uh, we know that our element is very much in the valley on their vehicles, uh, we had no idea. Um, ultimately, what we discovered, we we engaged that. We pulled off to the side. Um, we I was pulled off the vehicle with my gun and sent to the other side of the objective uh, to pull security, basically. Um, and so I set up pretty much for the rest of the night, um, and, and you know had some communication with my squad leader as as things. But the uh, all that was developing a couple hundred yards behind me. And what ultimately had happened was, you know, we believing um, uh, the individual that our squad leader uh, shot and killed uh, was an AMF fighter who was fighting with uh, us and fighting with Serial One, which is where Pat was. And so the position that our squad leader identified as being an enemy position by virtue of his fire was actually a friendly position. And so uh, we had fired, we, we found out the following day that we had, um, those of us in, in our vehicle had fired in that position. And um, as a result, we had sustained four casualties, um, all of them as a result of friendly fire, uh, two killed and, and two wounded. Um, the two that were killed was um, uh, the AMF soldier and of course, Pat. Um, and then our platoon leader, uh, David Utlaut, and then um, our RTO, the uh, radio transmission operator, uh, they were both hit. Um, but those, all those rounds were from us. So, um, you, so you get back to, to base here. Yeah. And you, you start, this information starts coming out. Or what, what are you thinking in this moment? What are you, what are you feeling besides, obviously, heartache that... Yeah. It was, at first, it was um, the initial thing that we knew... Uh, literally the following day, right before we moved back to the FOB, uh, we knew that um, it was friendly fire. Uh, and then we knew that there were 50 cal rounds uh, that were in the rock behind where uh, Pat was killed. And so the immediate assumption was that it was my immediate superior and 50 cal gunner, um, Stephen Ashpole, um, who killed him. Mm. Um, but then, but at the same time, we all knew that we fired there. So it was it was ambiguous in a way 
but it was in retrospect, we were in shock. Um, you know, we didn't know how to feel, uh, about any of that. And so, um, so yeah, there was a lot of, um, you know, we went back to the FOB. Um, it was not in dispute on any level that it was friendly fire. Um, and in fact, we then, um, uh, there was a, an article 15.6 investigation that began, began immediately, which 15.6 is just an informational investigation. We're just trying to figure out what happened. So that happened immediately. We were instructed on no uncertain terms. Uh, you know, my squad leader made it very, very plain that you do not lie. You, you don't have to remember everything. Um, they don't expect you to remember everything, but you tell them the truth as best as you remember it. And so that's what we were told. Um, we were told not to talk about it outside of the unit, which is pretty easy <laughs> because sure. that's the last thing anyone wants to talk about. Um, and then we had, within a few days of getting back, we had what they call a critical incident debrief, uh, where the entire platoon, um, X, uh, Kevin, and uh, Russell Bear, uh, who went with Kevin to accompany Pat's remains, um, they were absent. And of course, uh, Lieutenant Utloud and, and uh, Jade Lane, the RTO, those guys were gone. But um, the rest of us sat in a tent, um, you know, led by Chaplin and, you know, our uh, acting PL, who was a platoon sergeant, and conducted a critical incident debrief, which the idea was to just let everyone share their perspective, um, not assign blame, um, but just try and create understanding. And that that was the first time that, I actually had a full understanding situationally of, of who was where and really just the horror of it, um, mm-hmm. the horror of what happened, but then also the horror of what could have happened um, beyond as bad as it was. Um, you know, there's a number of other guys that could have easily been killed uh, by us accidentally. And so um, I felt much more the weight of their possible death and I felt the relief of their life. And so... Um, but then, so that's out. But then regiment was very anxious to, in the remaining weeks that we had in country to quote unquote, get us right back on the horse. And so we were right back out doing raids and patrols again. Um, and, and so it was, it was pretty easy to compartmentalize and it was pretty easy to um, lean into the shock that you were already in at that moment. That's amazing to me that, that our minds work that way that yeah. you can just you know, kind of put it back on the bookshelf yep. and, and move on. Um, you started to kind of put the Legos together and the mm-hmm. bread, follow the breadcrumbs and you came to a realization. Um, walk me, walk me through that a little bit. Yeah. I mean, ultimately, uh, it became clear just based on a couple things being clear. Once we finally got back, um, then it became clear. Number one, we didn't know, I didn't know that there had been, you know, uh, a nationally televised memorial service for Pat. I didn't know that. Um, I didn't, I had never heard or read his silver star citation, which was pure fiction, um, in terms of how his death was characterized. Um, I didn't know any of that. And, um, I don't think really any other guys in the unit did because we were still in Afghanistan. And so I was operating under the assumption that, um, you know, it was that obvious to us what happened. Well, of course, that's going to be communicated um, properly to the family, et cetera. And it wasn't until we got back um, and it became evident that Kevin didn't know what had happened. Um, and that's when things really started unraveling pretty he quickly. He was thinking that he was believing the narrative that was being 
told yeah. back in the United States. Correct. And so, um, so that started to unravel. Um, and then the family rightly started asking more questions because things just didn't add up. What uh, was that narrative? The narrative was essentially that, um, he, you know, Pat died, you know, charging an enemy position in a, a glorious hail of gunfire, you know, to protect his platoon mates, you know. So, which the thing is, like, the way that he died, as tragic and, and completely, uh, you know, awful as it is, it doesn't, you know, in my mind, as far as his intensity and his desire to serve, absolutely is not diminished. It's just that the only thing that you can do at that point to diminish his memory is then to lie about it. Um, and that's what happened. And um, that happened purely for selfish reasons um, to try and create a hero narrative that would serve the Department of Defense. That's just backwards to me. I, yes. I, just, I just can't see how you'd think that this would end up well. I mean, uh, you know, I make films and yeah. I know when there's truth and there's non-truth mm-hmm. and it's you're just constantly battling that yeah. The ethics of, well, if I twisted this, it might make the film better, but how do you sleep at night? I just, no, I don't see how that. I don't either. I think there's a lot of, I, and I've, um, I don't really spend much time on that anymore. And, and um, I certainly have at, at times trying to yeah. figure out what did you think was going to happen, you know, to whomever it was that was in the chain of command that was making those decisions. Uh, and, and I don't, I, quite frankly, I don't know, but I, I do know two things. I know that, um, I think some of the greatest evil that we have done as humans is done based on the concept of the ends justify the means. Um, and that leads us down some pretty dark roads yeah. where we say, you know what, if we lie about this one thing and this one person, but it helps us achieve some bigger objective, then it's worth it. I have to believe there was some of that. Um, but then I also um, can't help but wonder that culture, infantry, special operations, et cetera, is as regimented and hierarchical culture as you will find anywhere in the world. And the idea, I, I think I think it would be easy, I'm, and I'm you know, guessing, but I think it would be easy for somebody in a position of authority in those units to over time not be able to comprehend the idea that their orders and or their narrative would not be adhered to because that's ultimately what happened it was um it was really um brian o'neill who was with pat right next to him when he was killed and who was asked to sign the silver star citation and he said no (laughs) he said i'm not going to sign that that's not true that's not what happened and brian he faced just enormous pressure um uh, to do that and and to his credit he didn't cave um but i think that um uh an average Joe Ranger, you know, which Brian was, which I was on our first deployment, saying no to their chain of command, that doesn't happen. Right. And so I think I have to believe on some level that there's just a big cultural disconnect between how this unit functions and to some degree the godlike level of authority that certain commanders have and how that bumps up against the rest of the world um, and truth for that matter. Sure. Yeah, we... We had a hero even before he, you know, set foot in Afghanistan. Yeah. He was, I mean, just the act of quitting the NFL yeah. and, and fighting for the country. Um, that's amazing. Yeah. And so the higher ups are like, well, we're not going to let this story end by, by friendly fire. No. That's too devastating to uh, this, this plot. Um, so uh, how long after did you start to kind of put the pieces together? It was, um, 
it was pretty ambiguous for a while. Like I knew we had fired there. Um, I knew my rounds, for instance, um, were the ones that hit the uh, smaller rounds, not the, not yeah, the, 50 the, the two, there are 7.62 millimeter round. Um, uh, eventually it came to be, we came to realize that the nature of Pat's wounds were such that it wouldn't have been a 50 cal round cause that was too large. Um, that it was probably either myself or, um, a saw gunner on the vehicle who was firing a weapon with a five, five, six round. And so, um, Originally, I think I pushed it out of my mind and I just didn't want to engage that question. But then eventually, as subsequent investigations came out, um, that was the conclusion. The conclusion um, was by those experts that either it was a 5.56 or a 7.62. And based on who was there and based on us and our vehicle, it means it was either me or one other guy. And so that that happened within probably a year of... um, of being over there and and all that occurring this much time a year mm-hmm. and just not knowing was that haunting you just the even the possibility i think i was i was in i was in shock for a long time and so i could not put words or really even coherent thoughts to the feelings of guilt the feelings of shame um the rage the anger um all of that um i think it was just so it was so overpowering that um, it almost is like my system kind of just shut down in a way. Um, but then once it started to kind of reboot a little bit, um, then um, yeah, it was it was pretty. Um, I'm not sure how to describe it, but it it, it just feels like you're um, yeah, it feels like you're walking around um, with your crime kind of tattooed on your forehead. Um, I felt exposed. Um, I felt, I felt, uh, um, I felt like everyone knew what I had done, um, which was crazy. Like, um, the vast majority of people didn't have a clue. Um, certainly not the barista at the coffee shop, you know, making my drink for me, but just, just that, even those public engagements, you just feel like you are just a marked man walking through the world, hoping that people don't ask the right questions or stumble into um, what it is that, that you did. Yeah, finding out that that you're the guy who mm-hmm. who took out a national hero. Possibly, yeah. And, and the piece, because that was always a thing for a while. That's why I never really talked about my service was because it's not normal. Like, you know, you get to Ranger Regiment November of one year and then you're reassigned from Ranger Regiment, you know, June of the following year. That doesn't happen usually because you're a smashing success as a Ranger. <laughs> right. So... Just even that narrative, as you talk to people, just like, oh, you're in the military. Oh, so-and-so. Like even that, the thing that I thought was going to be a source of pride became absolutely epitome of shame. Wow. Um, and I didn't, didn't want to get anywhere near it. And so I would never tell people that I was um, – I would barely tell them I was an infantryman, let alone in regiment, because yeah. then depending on where the line of questionings went, it was just like, oh, no way. My brother was at ACO. Did you know – then it's just – then you have to – play that game what lie am i going to tell to sort of dance around this because you're just making chit chat in a church lobby do you really want me to tell you that i'm maybe one of the guys that killed pat tillman i don't think that's what you were bargaining for um but that's the sort of um yeah that's the sort of math that that i got used to doing um and i basically in that regard as it related to that i just figured as quickly as i get out of the army and as quickly as i could um hang other achievements on my life, then that would cumulatively drown out whatever failure that there was um, while I was in uniform. Wow. Um, was it ever concluded that one or the other, or is it still we don't a know. question mark? We don't know. Yeah, we, it's, it's not conclusive at this point. And that, um, I think that has a lot to do with the fact that there wasn't 
Um, I don't think the level of forensics analysis done at the point of um, of the engagement that probably should have been done. Um, but that's the assessment that that we have so far. Did you and the other gunner have any conversations over there? Yeah, I mean, he, we didn't we didn't really talk about it much. Um, no, I mean, we didn't we didn't talk. Nobody wanted to talk about it. Sure. And when we got back, um, Ashpole, um, he kind of checked out. Um, uh, Alders, who was the five five six uh, saw gunner, um, you know, he and I talked a fair bit, and he was he was pretty. I mean, everyone was you know pretty wrecked as a result of it, um, but didn't really have didn't really have the tools to even understand it. Right. Like there wasn't a context for like what is a quote unquote what is a range of normal responses to this. He didn't know. Um, it's just like well, you know, John Wayne just picks up his weapon and moves on. Yeah. So I guess that's what we yeah. do, right? So we didn't we didn't know really even how to deal with it. And then we certainly, you just kind of want to pretend. You want anything that feels normal. Right. That doesn't feel like life-altering, blow your world apart. You're just like, let's clean our weapons and watch the family guy because this sucks. Yeah. And I don't want to talk about it. So that was more or less the attitude. You mentioned music in your book, Jack White, Metallica. Uh <laughs> It's kind of the apocalypse now scene. Uh, <laughs> yes, w- when you hear when when you hear that music today, does it does it take you back? Is it is it how real is it today? Fifteen years later, removed. Yeah, it is. Um, yeah, music and you know smells. Those two things have really yeah. powerful abilities to, to to bring back memories of any type. Um, the main thing for me is like I used to. Uh, I still love. I, I still like that music, uh, and and, and in certain degrees, but I think there were times where like I needed it. Um, I'm, I'm of the belief that the music we choose chooses us. And so, um, when I'm clicking through my playlist, I'm not looking for something to make me feel a certain way. I'm looking for the thing that helps express where I'm at. Wow. Like there were times, you know, particularly at, you know, in the military and even uh, a lot of years in the follow-up of that, where, um, I was riddled with anger and I was riddled with questions and I was riddled with a lot of things. And so a lot of music like that, um, I needed it. And so now it's not even so much uh, for me. It's like, I don't, you know, I, I hear that sometimes or listen to it and it's fine. You know, it's not like a, a pathway to a dark world or anything. It's more of a reminder for where I'm not. Um, and just that I'm thankful that I'm not in that place anymore. Um, and, uh, um, Black Album especially was always funny because that was a joke at the time, our cultural moment, early 2000s. Somehow, it was like somebody had a, a, a um, it was somebody's duty to make sure somewhere at Second Ranger Battalion, the Black Album was playing at all times. Oh like, I don't know how that was, but like. That's epic. One guy, I remember in the uh, our gym, um, this was like. We had a massive computer with somebody had Napstered whatever playlist in the gym. And one of the most scary moments I ever saw when I was at regiment was the reaction from a squad leader at somebody who had put on Dave Matthews band <laughs> in, the, in the second range of Italian gym. That was not going over. That was not going to happen. It needed to be loud. It needed to be angry and mean. That yeah. was that was the soundtrack. So, Oh, man. That, that gets me excited. I met... Uh, Actually, I saw Lars Ulrich at a at an event I was working at, and I just walked up to him and just said, "Hey, man, thank you." Really? And he looked at me. He goes, "For what? Like, who are you? And for what?" I just go, 
for being the soundtrack to my youth. Yeah, you know, seriously, it like, has so much power. It does. And, well, uh, and it allows like it. It. I remember for that even me like some of those songs that like you're in a bad place. Um, not that they were in a bad place when they wrote it or performed right. it, but it's just like it's expressing usually some pretty yeah. dark and confusing things. Yeah. And at least you felt like you're not the only one. Right. You know, like yeah. at least you felt like, okay, there's other people asking these questions yeah. and and trying to sort this out. So Yeah, and there's a spirituality to it as well. And, you know, growing up in youth group, it's like that was part of going to camp, right? It's right. like with all heads bowed and eyes closed. Right. Raise your hand <laughs> if you want to burn your Metallica CD. And I'm like, I don't know if I want to do no, that. No, thank you. And I, I think there's some some beautiful lament that that is in there. And I think it's I think it's spiritual. I, I just don't think things are secular, you know. I think it's I all gods either. at some level and Yeah, and, I agree. Uh, so, um, okay. So your journey home, mm-hmm. um, you've had this in- horrific war experience, um, your home, uh, what was it like setting foot on us soil after being in Afghanistan? It was great. I mean, part of it is just that you have, there's so many sensory things that are occurring. Like you are legitimately happy to be back and you, there is a feeling that, okay, everything that happened over there will stay over there and we can kind of turn the page. So there was a lot of, I would, I would call them sort of false finales, um, okay, I gave my, I gave my statement for the first investigator, and then I went back out on patrol. I guess that's done. Uh, okay, there's another one. Well, I gave my statement then, and then we're back on. So I guess we're done. Oh, now I get back, and you know, it, you know all these other things happened during the course of my military career. Mm-hmm. But then there's a lot of, yeah, I would say a lot of false finales. So you're just happy to be home, and then um, operating under a really high degree of naivete because you don't. You can't possibly fathom the personal implications of what's happened, nor can you fathom or understand the broader implications of of all that had happened with um, how how Pat's death was characterized and and what that was going what was what was going on, how that dovetailed with the war in Iraq and the war in Afghanistan and these these much bigger conversations that were far more um, consequential at a national level than than just the death of one person. So. Uh, yeah, pretty happy to be back, but pretty clueless, um, largely. Any girls in your life at this time to come home to? So prior to deployment, I had met um, a girl named Brooke. Um, and um, It's my mom's name. Is it really? Yeah. So I don't think it was her. but um, <laughs> So I uh, know, um, met Brooke, and um, we hadn't started dating prior to deployment, but we came back. I came back, and um, yeah, we, we went on our first date. Um, Gosh, I'm getting this is recorded now. I need to remember the date because she does. But uh, we went on our first date um, in, I believe, June um, of that summer of 2004. And um, here in the Seattle Tacoma area, yeah, like I picked her up at her house in Puyallup, and then um, we went down to Stillicum, had dinner, uh, went back to 72nd Street Starbucks in Tacoma, and sat and talked for hours. And it was weird. Like she asked me. Um, it was. It felt really evident, I think, for both of us that there was something kind of maybe more uh, kind of stirring. And I was the time I, I would wear uh, a, a silver uh, KIA bracelet. You see some guys wearing, you know, that, that have the name date of somebody who's been had been killed in action. And at a regiment, we were all encouraged to you know learn the story of a fallen ranger and and to to wear a KIA bracelet accordingly. And so I wore, at the time I was wearing um, a guy by the name of uh, John Mark Price, who uh, he was in, or I was in his platoon, um, but he was a member of 2nd Platoon um, who jumped into Panama uh, in 89 and died on the jump. 
And so she was just sitting there and she just asked me about my bracelet and I just kind of told her and it just felt super weird. Like I'm sitting here at that time, it was evident that um, I was probably going to be um, released from regiment um, for what happened. And uh, my future in the army was pretty uncertain and, and a lot of things just had a big question mark. And it just felt super weird to just not tell her what was going on. And so on our first date, um, you know, we she asked me kind of about deployment a little bit and just told her. Um, and she didn't have a container for that either. You know, she was um, she wasn't glued into press or national media. She didn't know. Um, I think she would say that it just felt really heavy and really sad, but yeah. also. Uh, I guess maybe strangely appropriate that I told her. It just felt like this big thing that's governing my life that could impact the direction of my life just at a very basic level. And to not have that on the table just felt weird. And so, so yeah, we went on that date and, and then we continued dating that summer until I was uh, reassigned to the East Coast um, to finish my enlistment. So a long-term relationship? Yeah, long-term, long-distance. So we started, we were dating in 2004. Um, I was bouncing around doing various things in the Army on the East Coast in, in that uh, beginning of September of 2004. And then by the following um, August, we were married. Um, and um, then we spent the next, you know, uh, we spent pretty much two and a half years apart, um, part of that dating, part of that being married until... Uh, my uh, my term of service was over in May of 2007. So so yeah, we'd had this relationship. By the time I got home, I home home. Um, I'm out of the military, um, back to um, the job in Olympia, Washington, which is where we moved to in 07. Um, we'd been married for at that time almost two years, but had really never lived together for more than a week or ten days at a time, and so. Um, and she didn't have any idea, uh, really, of what I was the, the level of what I was going through um, at all um, during the course of that. And so, so yeah, that was another, um, you know, some of your more stressful things. Getting, That's stressful without yeah your history. Yeah, and, uh, and and so you're balancing this relationship. You're you're balancing a, a a career that has, I mean, huge trauma in it. Just, I mean, just yeah. war alone. We see so many veterans with PTSD and yeah. and just the guilt of mm-hmm. of an, a complete and total accident. Um, how are you coping with this at the time? I mean, new marriage, new life, and and a, and yeah. a history. Uh, work and alcohol. I mean, those are the two things. So um, I had never drank before being in the army. Um, I wasn't a prude about it. It's just I had never done it. And then within you know probably six months of being back home. Um, Nightmares were becoming more persistent, um, you know, agitation, um, a lot of restlessness, hypervigilance, um, ultimately what, you know, was post-traumatic stress disorder. And um, I started self-medicating, you know, just to sleep. And so that, I was pretty high functioning in that regard. Like I could still, you know, I could drink a ton, you know, one night, you know, wake up. Um, and then go do my job. And, and part of that was because you're 23, you know, you can get sure. away with a lot that, um, you can't now that we're old, but, um, but yeah, so, and then I, I poured, you know, all my energies, I was, you know, hired with a pretty large wealth management firm, good quote unquote, good job, um, also stressful. And so that's where, 
you're just trying to fill fill your mind and fill your heart with things that don't allow the other things to kind of creep into the present. And so whatever you can do to distract yourself, whatever you can do to make yourself feel better, um, to, to medicate from that pain, um, that's what I was doing. And so, but it was largely work and alcohol. Boy, this, this story never ends good. How does, how does this progress? Where do you, where do you go from here? Was it, was alcohol enough? Did, did you start dealing with, you know, getting I, into drugs or pills or? I didn't. And I, and, and I think that's, you know, really, but by God's grace, I mean, I look at particularly at that time, um, how easy both for civilian and military, you know, to access, you know, opioids and whatnot. And I never did. I never had any injuries, you know, quote unquote sports injuries while I was in that put me in that realm of having to make that choice. Mm. So, um, I don't know if I would have, but, um, I never did. Um, I, I mean, uh, alcohol was essentially, you know, my, my drug, my medicine of choice and caffeine, you know, you're, you're trying to, you're trying to uppers and downers, uppers and downers. It's just like whatever I can do to get myself amped up, uh, to face the stress of the workday. And then that's done. And whatever I can do to kind of wind down and, um, diet deteriorates, exercise, all sorts of things that in and of themselves aren't going to make you feel good. Um, but that's just layers and layers on top of a lot of other hurt. So you're a Christian at this time. And, um, I mean, you, uh, you grew up in a Christian household, uh-huh. you, um, you go to a Christian university yeah. and, uh, where's, where's God when you get home from, yeah. from this, where's God when you're turning to the bottle? I mean, you know, right and wrong. Are you starting to see red flags and, and are you asking for help? Or are you just nope. kind of content with where you're at? Um, I came to the point before I got out of the military as, even more investigations unfolded and as criminal accusations unfolded and were ultimately dismissed and um, the stress and strain of that, it came to a point to where I would say, you know, and I'm not going to get into the whole like, when are you quote unquote saved or when are you not? Like, if you can tell me in the gospels when any of the disciples were saved, I'll give you a medal because well, I can't Well, it's when all that. heads bowed or eyes are closed. That's right. <laughs> you raise your hand, right? <laughs> That's right, which I did that about 12 times just to make sure that it <laughs> took. It's when you burn your Metallica CDs. That's right. Of course. Of That's course. right. So, um, so no, like, I, I, I mean, I believe that, um, you know, the work of the Holy Spirit was definitely true in my life prior to that. But the way that I describe it is um, I was, I was the... Um, I was the oldest son in the story of the prodigal son leading up to deployment. I'd be the guy who would look back and say, you know, gee whiz, that story, prodigal son, that is so great. It's so good to know that God can love even people like that, even though I don't relate with that sort of waywardness and that sort of whatever, like, which that in of itself is this just inkblot test of sin and self-righteousness, which is like the fact that that's who you identify as the good guy in the story is a problem right, <laughs> and right. needs to be addressed and puts you on some pretty shaky ground. And so um, I basically, you know, pick a term, you know, moralistic therapeutic deism certainly mm-hmm. fit a lot of my concept where I believe that being moral was a good thing. Mm-hmm. I derive my morality from scripture, from, from the Hebrew and Christian Bible. Um, I believe there was a God and I believe that he was there to help me out to have my best life now. And so none of this fit in that scenario. In fact, it felt like a cruel joke because it would have been better in my mind at the time. Like I could have been killed in combat. At least I'd be dead. I could have been wounded in combat. At least that would have been honorable. But now 
I'm a dead man walking. Now you've left me physically alive, but what am I supposed to do with this? What am I supposed to do with this? And so um, it felt cruel. Um, it, it felt, yeah, it just felt like um, God is either all loving or he's all powerful, but he's not both. Mm. And my bet was that he's all powerful and he could fix this, he could fix the pain, or he could have kept me out of the situation, but he chose not to, which means he doesn't love me that much. And so even before getting out of the army, I stopped going to church in my heart. I basically said, you know what? I can be a good person. Um, I'm not a serial killer. I'm not, you know, some, uh, however, however you want to draw the lines mm -hmm. of morality in your life, I'm on the right side of it. And I don't need the complications of any of this to go live my life and do what I'm going to do. And so I, I walked away from the Lord. I didn't want to have anything to do with it um, just because I was operating in hurt. And that, again, that's, that just reveals, you know, frankly, the, the shallowness of my own um, belief structure, really, um, going into that. So you're angry, and that's, uh, it's got to feel like a just anger. Yeah. Yeah, it does. Cause you, it is and it isn't because, and that was always sort of the math that was maddening about it was the fact that there was on the one hand to take for me to take full responsibility for what happened is in and of itself a, a, a ridiculous expression of pride. I wasn't that important. There was all sorts of decisions that were made prior to my decision to pull the trigger that helped contribute to that. So, but at the same time I pulled the trigger and so it was, there was periods of time where it was this sort of maddening sort of calculus you're trying to do to say, okay, like, what is the penance I'm supposed to pay? Like, what, what is the amount of pain that's just knowing that on the one hand, I'm angry at other people for what they did or didn't do, but at the same time, I'm angry at myself for what I did. Wow. Um, and so it was, it's just, it was just a giant mess. You say in the, in the book that, uh, the Bible doesn't solve the problem of pain is kind of where you're at. And so no. there's no, there's no help there. God's not helping. You felt alone. Did you feel, did you feel close to Brooke in this time? Um, I did initially, I think initially, particularly when we were, um, when I was still in the military and we were having a long distance relationship, that was really the lifeline in a lot of respects because that was, I could, um, it was always something external to me that was the problem. It was, well, I'm still in the military and we're separated by a continent, which is painful and difficult. As soon as I'm out of the military, then it'll be behind me and that'll be better. And then you get out of the military and it's just like, well, you know, I'm new job, new area. As soon as I get that figured out, then I'll be fine. And then financial crisis hits and I'm in the worst possible industry, one of the worst industries oh for that. Oh gosh, yes. And so then it's just like, well, as soon as that's over. 2008? Yeah. So I started in the industry in 2007. And so there was always something that wasn't me that was the problem. And then eventually um, Brooks, you know, um, pleadings with me. I mean, she had a front row seat to my destruction in those years. Sure. And so her pleadings with me, like, you need to talk to somebody. Like, why don't you talk to somebody? Like, can't you talk to somebody? I'll go with you. And I would never argue with her. It was never just like, oh, you're crazy. It was just like, yeah, you're probably right. Um, but I was afraid. And I what was- What were you afraid of? I was afraid that, it's, it's so stupid, the, the logic that you find yourself in at times in the midst of pain. Um, I was afraid that- what if I try all of these different modalities of treatment? 
whatever they are, I didn't even know what they were. I couldn't even tell you if you would have asked me what at the time I had, you know, raging PTSD and survivor's guilt and moral injury and all this stuff. I couldn't even tell you what it stood for. So I had no idea. I had no context for what I was going through other than there's strong people who go to war and come home. And then there's weak people who go to war and can't deal with it. And I'm not a weak person. So I have to figure this out and get through it. But I was ultimately afraid of the idea, what if I go to get help? What if I try everything and I'm still sick? Then I'm hopeless. So in my, in my twisted logic, as long as I'm like self-medicating, all of the treatments that were otherwise untried were hopeful in some weird way. Wow. And so it's like, as long as I could just keep those out there, I'll handle it. But I basically didn't, I didn't have the guts and and it was, I didn't have the guts to say, Hey, we're going to, we're going to do whatever we can to figure this out. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't work, but we're going to try it. Nor did I have the guts or really um, just even the wherewithal or awareness to understand how sick I was, to raise my hand and say, I'm not doing well and I can't fix this on my own. So Brooke's watching this. She's watching you self-destruct and she's got to just be so frustrated, just yeah. hands tied. Yep. Um, the man she loves is slowly dying yeah. in front of her. Um, how, do, how does your relationship grow in that environment? It doesn't. So, I mean, it deteriorated. You know, essentially we were... I would say kind of running on, you know, and, and in her perspective on it would be far more circumspect than mine was uh, or is, but we were running on emotional fumes of just like, hey, you're out and you're home and new house and new job and, you know, all these things. And and also, um, you know, fatherhood because, you know, Brooke was uh, a single mom when I met her. And, and so by the time I got home, you know, my, my stepdaughter, Gracie, was, um, gosh, she was six at the time. And so like, Another thing, you know, to step into that you're, um, wasn't prepared for, but, um, ultimately, uh, she just got tired. She got tired of watching it and she got tired of being pushed out and she got tired of being excluded. And, uh, you know, our, our home fell apart because it was effectively two people who liked each other and did a pretty good job of cohabitating that were not submitted to the Lord. Um, uh, and that was hundred percent on me and that were certainly not submitted to one another. And so, um, so yeah, our, our marriage just continued to deteriorate during that time. Did it end in divorce? It did. We were ultimately, um, uh, I moved out of the house in 2009 and we filed divorce paperwork, you know, that year. You've lost everything at this point. It's, I mean, the recession is in full swing. The funny thing is, the funny thing was, the one thing that was, uh, I would say the one thing that was working, I mean, the Lord was faithful throughout all of that, but um, other than the stress of work, um, my practice at the firm was growing exponentially. Oh, interesting. Um, in part because I had inherited a bunch of clients from folks who had left, but also in part because you have people who are becoming trauma bonded to you through the course of the Great Recession. So now, I mean, you are their critical lifeline as it relates to the money that you're managing for them. So, I mean, I can distinctly remember uh, that summer, 2009, divorce paperwork had been filed. Um, I'm on a top advisor rewards trip that was supposed to be to New York, but that got downgraded to Seattle. <laughs> and so uh, I'm in Seattle just kind of sitting there, you know, drinking beer and watching TV on the company's dime, just sort of feeling like, well, I guess this is what 
success feels like. Doesn't feel like I because th- you have that. It, it almost compared and contrasted that which is of not that it's bad to succeed a business, but the value of that relative to what was being lost couldn't be compared. So success didn't feel successful. Didn't feel good. So wow. That's amazing. I, I think just, uh, it's, it's weird. I can't put myself in your shoes. I mean, there's so many elements to your story that I'm just like, it, it's hard to relate to you. It's hard to relate to the story. Um, yeah. how, uh, where does it go from there? Where do you, you find yourself? I mean, you're no longer married. You're, you're, you're in a bar in Seattle. And so this is life. This is it. Sort of like, that's the point at which, um, you start realizing that you're kind of in the middle of a blast radius and that the the reality of divorce, um, divor- divorce can solve some problems, but it creates a myriad of others. Mm. Um, and it's no, you know, it's no condemnation on anyone who's gone through divorce or experienced it, um, but it is death. Um, you know, don't be mistaken about that. It's absolutely death, um, even if the alternative seems completely unbearable. And so you're, you're grieving. Um, that was a time where, uh, I, I started, that was enough of a wake up call for me where I started actually seeing a counselor and that in of itself was helpful just to sort of have somebody, it's like you have this gaping wound that you've never admitted or realized or had somebody diagnose as a wound. Mm. And so that in of itself is kind of the first step, which I'm pretty sure is the first step in any 12 step program is admit that there's a problem and um, so oddly enough, like our separation and then subsequent divorce um, created space for me to sort of just like kind of figure some stuff out. Yeah, turn um, introspective. Yeah. And, um, you know, the Lord was consistently pursuing. Um, the Lord was consistently, um, yeah, faithful in that. And so I started turning back more in that in that time frame and seeking more i mean i was still drinking and i was still doing my thing but just realizing that you know maybe the thing that i've pushed out of my life is exactly the thing that um is essential to my life and my being which is you know relationship with my creator and so um so that started the ship started kind of um turning a bit during that time and and um you know ultimately we were divorced and um, you know, Brooke and I began to reconcile during that time. And so, yeah. So there's a moment where, I mean, you, you hear the voice of God and that, that even sounds crazy. Just saying that out loud, like, you yeah, know, that's people on the street say that who yeah. are, who are crazy. Um, but you, you clearly heard God's voice. It was one word. What was it? Yeah. He just, um, he just said, stop. And it was, um, I was literally making decisions at that point in time that uh, it's like I was unwittingly writing my own allegory <laughs> as far wow. as uh, as far as that goes. I was I was hiking on Mount Rainier and making stupid decisions on the trail that I shouldn't have been making um, to try and challenge myself, and uh, found myself lost and uh, in a pretty dangerous. Well, I wouldn't say lost. Brooke would say that I was lost. I knew where I was at. <laughs> Classic. Within a few square miles. Um, <coughs> I was out on the Carbon River Glacier, and I experienced in that, that was the 4th of July weekend of um, 2009, I experienced the beauty and ecstasy of going off the trail and going in places that maybe you're not supposed to go, um, and then the danger of that. And um, 
I had no, I was not going to church. I was not whatever Christian disciplines you're supposed I was not anywhere in that boat. But um, as I was contemplating my next steps, as I'm holed up next to a tree, shivering, waiting for daylight to finish my hike, um, uh, he spoke. And um, I, uh, I don't, I don't really know how to describe it. There's nothing that you can, that I could say that I could write that would um, encapsulate it. Um, you say it pretty beautifully though in the book, you say it's the, the force of his voice unleashed a torrent of rational thought. Yeah. yeah. It's like that was said and it was just like a, it was just like a cosmic two by four, just to your chest. It was just, but at the same time, It was completely loving. Wow. Uh, there was, um, uh, there was not even a, um, a hint of condemnation. There was not a, um, a hint of judgment. Um, but, uh, you're just, brought back to reality, which is you're loved and you're mine and you need to stop and turn around <laughs> literally and metaphorically. And, um, it's, uh, it's almost embarrassing that it took that, um, in some respects because, um, I can look back and I can see moments where he was speaking all along. Um, but for whatever reason, uh, I wasn't listening and, uh, it took, that kind of experience for me, um, I guess I'm that dense <laughs> to actually uh, perk my head up and say, huh, maybe maybe this isn't working. Uh, maybe life according to Stephen, trails according to Stephen, maybe maybe I am not my own maker or, or, or the, the one who is best suited to chart a, a course for myself. And so um, I'd like to say that everything changed and it was a 180 and it was no but that was that was the apex of my waywardness and and from that point i can i can trace um a walk a walk back home there's another moment of healing in your your journey and um you were at a men's retreat at your church it wasn't even a church it was just a group of other people spiritual people frankly that um given my um more traditional Christian background, frankly, made me super uncomfortable because yeah. it was like there was no, there was nothing I was familiar with about it. Um, it was just a friend of mine um, who had invited me. And um, at that point, this is years, you know, years after that, um, you know, when Brooke and I reconciled in 2010, um, we were in a much better place for a lot of reasons. Number one, we were following Jesus together, but then also, the fact that I had PTSD and the fact that, you know, the reason why, you know, I was medicating in that way wasn't because of her. It wasn't sure. because of like, at least the disease was named, but the disease was there nonetheless. And so, um, I mean, this is chronicled in the book, but essentially, um, when you're, um, drinking a lot, working a lot, um, dealing with nightmares and, and just struggling with the mental health dynamic that, that doesn't work well, um, on your physical or mental health. And so by the time, um, really by the time 2015 rolled around, um, you know, four years ago, uh, I was, you know, for the first time in my life, you know, seriously contemplating suicide, um, just because 
not because I, I didn't have things to live for, um, but I was just so tired. I was so tired of having, um, it felt like my being hijacked by these memories and by this experience that was still so visceral. Uh, when I would lay down in bed at night, I could still, and you know, all the other noises of life get turned down. Um, and you have those quiet moments, which I, for years, abhorred. Um, I could feel the butt stuck of my weapon in my shoulder. Mm. It was as if I could reach out and touch it. Um, that's how imprinted in my being um, that experience was. And I kept reliving it. Um, and so I just wanted to be done. Um, and that's, that was the place that I found myself you know, four years ago. You mentioned a Chaplain Jones and you saying, I just want it to stop, but it won't stop. I just want it to be in the past. And it's just something that yeah. would just haunt you. It never, yeah. never went away. Never. Never no, went away. No. And it was a lot of that is it's, you know, we're whole beings and I'm no clinician, but I know that whenever we try and sometimes we have to isolate aspects of our being to try and treat it. Like if, you know, I'm sitting, you know, eating a fudge sundae, you know, complaining about my, my diabetes. I don't need somebody to lay hands on me. Right, right. <laughs> I need somebody to say, stop it. <laughs> <laughs> You're eating crap, you know? So um, it's not to over-spiritualize everything, but at the same time, we are spirits that, that live in a body. I believe that. And, and um, I know that my sickness was um, biochemical. I had stuff that was firing in my brain that was making me feel as though I was in a war and when I wasn't. And I, I wasn't able to override that with my conscious thoughts. But I also know that it was spiritual. And, and I believe that for me, when, you know, healing of that finally came, um, the main thing that it took for me to be healed um, wasn't some, you know, alchemy or witchcraft of you go to this place and you do that thing and you say this, whatever. I had to be brought to a place where I admitted and embraced my complete weakness and my complete dependence that I could not fix myself. And I had to be brought to a place um, of true humility. And um, it's not to say that I'm the epitome of humility in any respect. I have an ego and I have pride. But um, the fact that it took me, you know, 12 years from the point of being at war to be healed of the wounds, the unseen wounds of that war, um, was in some respect maybe a reflection of the severity of those wounds, but it was also a reflection of my own pride um, and my own, um, yeah, my, my own stubbornness, frankly, to actually come to a place where it's just like I'm desperate enough that I'll go to a, a nameless spiritual retreat because I don't know what else to do. Sure. Um, because I've tried everything else and I'm still sick. And so I am without hope. And so... Sure. I'll go. <laughs> Why not? So it's the age old, you know, problem. We we take young men who are human beings with mm -hmm. hearts that are beating for passionately for life and, you know, for wholeness and for purpose. Mm -hmm. And we, we send them to war um, and uh, they come home changed. They yes. come home with experiences, um, a lot of them like yours, you yes. know, and, and, uh, and then we just kind of expect them to reemerge into society and, yeah. and that's um you know because you've you're basically at a point where you if you ask for help that you're you're weak that's you right know? and, and you're you've been trained the last you know for war it's like you don't be weak that's when exactly you're a soldier right. so uh, how do you um how do you 
get to that point where you just can say, yeah, I, I need help here. And, and where is that help for yeah, our veterans? Yeah, I mean, for, for, for me, I had to get to the, the, the place of, um, yeah, I had to get to that place of um, just brokenness where it's just like, I am screwed. <laughs> what a gift. Yeah. I mean, yeah. honestly. That's right. Exactly right. It was. And the, the thing, and that's so often the case, how many times is it, you know, it's just like, oh my gosh, as long as I don't have to talk to that person today. It's like, how often is that the one person that you needed to talk to or they needed to hear something <laughs> from you? Like, what is the thing that you're dreading or you're afraid of, which may be exactly the thing that the Lord has for you to lean into? Right. That's not always the case. You can't take that as some sort of, you know, trite saying, you know, don't put that on a coffee mug or anything. But but I think there is some truth to that. There certainly is to me of like, um, he is not the author of fear. And so if if there is fear, it doesn't mean that you go do it. I'm not saying that, the thing that you're afraid of, but it is to, to, to say, I, th I think there's an invitation to bring that before him and say, what's going on here? Like, um, and for me, I was just, yeah, the, the muscles of um, self-reliance, the muscles of independence are the ones that always got rewarded. Mm. Um, not the muscles of, of, of codependence. Codependence isn't a dirty word, but in our society, it largely is. And particularly in that culture, it largely is, which is strange because so much of the effectiveness, even of a special operations community culture, isn't based on the individual. It's based on the functionality of the unit. So that should be the place where codependence in a healthy way is the most welcomed, but I think largely because of stigma and because of the culture, it isn't. And so that's there's a lot of guys, I was one of them, who, you know, not everyone who goes to um, to war comes back with PTSD or, uh, or an unseen wound, just like not everyone comes back with a gunshot wound. Um, but the ones that come back with gunshot wounds, we, we can treat them and identify them, and it's safe to get that treatment. And for a lot of folks within the military, the active duty component, it is still um, practically, in some cases, policy-wise unsafe, but then practically, culture-wise, still very unsafe, mm. where it will be, you'll, you'll be told, by all means, raise your hand and ask for help. Well, depending on the community, that can be effectively synonymous with ending your career. Um, or, oh, you needed to talk to a chaplain on deployment. Great. Why didn't you go ahead and have that conversation at Fort Lewis? We'll just go ahead and send you home. I know guys in my unit who in subsequent deployments in, in, in second platoon, the only way they were able to get mental health, um, even just have a conversation, their squad leaders identified stuff that was going on, not that they weren't combat effective, but like they're dealing with stuff. So they had to get them in front of a Navy shrink completely off the books in order for those conversations to happen. Because they knew that if they raised their hand and said, uh, um, you know, I'm at the tip of the spear and I need to have a conversation, then that's basically a binary um, switch that gets flipped that says, well, then you can't be at the tip of the spear. And some of that is okay, just like you don't want to put somebody back in the game that's clearly not physically able to, to play. It's like, yeah, if you're hurt bad enough, we don't want you out there. But at the same time, you know, you sprain your wrist, it doesn't mean you can't play in the Super Bowl. So we've, we don't have, I don't believe, um, the full spectrum of understanding that it's not either you're an alpha warrior capable of kicking down all manner of doors or you're fit for a straitjacket. That's, that's, that's essentially, that's at least my understanding. That's how I understood it was there's guys who need mental health treatment that are veterans, and those are the guys that are homeless in surplus jackets begging for change. Um, I wear a, literally a white collar to work. <laughs> I manage other people's money. I have a job a lot of people would kill for. And 
On top of that, the trauma that I'm experiencing was in some degree caused by me. Hmm. So then it's not only a, what do you have to be sorry about, but it's even if you have a wound, do you, Stephen, um, as somebody who was a shooter in this incident, do you even deserve to have that wound to be treated? Um, and for me, for a lot of years, the answer to that was no. How do you reform that? I mean, I think we're starting to have the conversation um, where it's PTSD is being talked about. Yeah. Um, is, is, is it being adequately addressed? Um, are there options now? Has, has the military changed? Um, do you, how do you reform this? That's, I guess that's my question. It's a great question. So, and that's, that's key and that's at the heart. That's why War Story has even been written um, is not to tell this journey, but to put that story in service of highlighting um, a greater issue. Uh, I mean, I say it in the author's note that if the book is worth reading, I'm biased, I think it is, but if it's worth reading, it's worth reading not because it's unique, but precisely because it's ordinary. Because the only thing unique about War Story as it relates to the military is the fact that it included somebody who happened to play in the NFL. Um, and that's not no dishonor to Pat or his memory. He was an extraordinary person. Um, but he's one of 6,000 people that have died in Iraq and Afghanistan. And, he's, uh, and, and I'm one of countless others who have experienced the pains of war, whether they were in uniform or not. And so... Um, it's a big problem. I think it's worth noting that um, we've come a long ways. Um, if you go back, you look at the the burdens that the Vietnam generation suffered under. Uh, PTSD wasn't even a diagnosis. Yeah, there's no identifier, none whatsoever. And so um, the 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 road that that generation of veterans has paved to even get where we're at is significant, um, and that's worth noting because I think it's too easy to look at the VA or to look at you know what have you and just simply say it's all broken, it's all a mess. Mm -hmm. There's lots of amazing people um, working every day within the active duty component and within the VA component that if it weren't for them, the 22 a day suicide statistic amongst veterans, I'm sure would be even higher. So in seeking to reform, put things back together as they should be, I think it's worth noting how far we've come. Um, we have, uh, we've partnered with um, those that have um, uh, studied this extensively and practiced also in the active duty military. And um, uh, we've, uh, with them, uh, really drive, driven by their research, you know, we're putting forth 17 recommendations to the Department of Defense, to the, the chairs of the Senate and the House Armed Services Committee to say, hey, these are 17 things that need to change. Things like policies that reinforce stigma. Um, and getting help. Uh, things like, um, uh, just was told a story uh, for a friend of mine, um, uh, a guy that he knows, um, SF guy, 18-year Green Beret veteran, did something really stupid um, off the battlefield but overseas, something that absolutely should have consequences. But the consequence that he's receiving as an 18-year veteran is a dishonorable discharge, which means he gets no pension and he gets zero access to any VA benefits or any treatment. Mm. So instead of, I mean, how many planes has he jumped out of? How many compressed discs in his back and jacked up knees does he have from effectively being an SF operator? The Army gets to say, we owe you nothing because you did this one thing. Mm. Those policies have to change um, because all that does, what do you think that guy's going to do? Um, the career that he's had for 18 years is gone. The pension is gone. Um, he's sitting at home drinking beer, watching infomercials. So there's a, there's a litany of things like that where at the active duty level, um, we can, I believe, help 
uh, move the needle from a policy standpoint. But simply moving the needle from a policy standpoint is not good enough because, you know, for me, the answer was not in going to the right clinician, even though that's good. Uh, that can be really good. Ultimately, the answer is, um, for me, I had so many people around me who would have been willing to counsel and listen and and pray and cry with, and I was too afraid. I was too afraid to raise my hand and and say, this is who I am, and um, and this is what I've experienced, and this is what I've done. And so until we as humans, regardless of what we've gone through, until we can do that within the confines of community, there won't be healing. There might be medication, uh, which can be helpful. I'm not, uh, I'm not demeaning that. But I, I believe that um, the answer really lies in healthy vulnerability and in um, folks who they may feel that their best years of service are behind them because they're not in the military anymore. But the reality is the guys and folks that they served with, they need them just as much now as they ever did. Mm. And so there is a policy component and that bleeds over into a cultural component. Um, if you just have policy stapled to the wall, but practically speaking, nobody does it, um, it doesn't matter. That's a, that's a loss. And so that's only going to change one story at a time. Um, I believe telling stories is central to that. Um, and that's one of the reasons why you know I believe so much in what Nations is doing is because it's not about a particular agenda. It's just about this is what people are experiencing. Um, yeah. This is where they're hurting. Yeah. This is where they're confused. And that's okay. Um, this is where they're hopeful. Um, and, and how do we meet each other where we're at in the journey? Um, yeah. that's, that's really, um, I think that's really the answer is, is community. Yeah. Nations media. We, we love stories like yours because, um, it, it's a narrative that if it was just a war story, if it was just a book that, that didn't have an invitation, um, yeah. it would, it would just be another, you know, war story. That's but, right. I love I love that you are a reformer. You're you're not content with the outcome of um, of how um, society is dealing with uh, men and women who are, yes. are facing this very horrific reality of PTSD. And mm-hmm. um, you're not content with just prescribing antidepressants. You say that uh, eventually it was just as depressing just taking the <laughs> antidepressant. And I, I think. Um, you know, just being numb and remote is not a solution. No. And um, I love that you're uh, willing to posture yourself in in this place to to bring about, uh, I think, gospel reconciliation, hope, mm-hmm. change, salvation. Mm-hmm. And uh, and uh, I just I'm so grateful to uh, to know your story. I, I know everyone who's uh, listened to your story and, and who will read the book because there's, there's so much more information in the book. It's it's a must read. Um, is going to greatly uh, benefit and be blessed. So, uh, Stephen, your, your story, um, why don't, why don't you take us home? Uh, where are you at today? You and Brooke and your family? Uh, what, yeah. What does that look like today? Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's great. We live in Olympia still. Um, uh, my day job, I, I work, um, for a company called Capstone Trusts. We do trust administration and state settlement. So similar or at least related to the field I was in previously. Um, yeah, we have, um, uh, two girls. Gracie is now um, a teenager. She's 17. And, wow. and uh, we have uh, Hazel, um, who is going to be seven here in a couple months. And so those two girls uh, keep us on our toes for sure uh, and uh, keep life interesting. But uh, but yeah, and we're, you know, 
spending more and more time, you know, on um, not just, I mean, the book is written, it's done, um, but uh, certainly spending more time now leaning into um, sort of the, the policy um, change aspect of this, which is really, really exciting. So you've got a monumental road ahead of you. <laughs> well, I don't know. It's it's a road of some sort. Yeah, so yeah. we'll take one step and one day at a time. But um, but yeah, it's we feel. Uh, I mean, there's good days and bad days. Um, there's good weeks and bad weeks. And and you know we have our struggles. There's there's no question. Um, we're still human. We're still sinful. We still have to forgive and be forgiven each and every day. Um, so um, so that is still our reality. Um, but we we are very much at a place where we are able to reflect um, uh, on just grace, on things that we've been given that we have not deserved on any level. And so we want to, um, you know, our hope and our heart is to um, respond to that um, and and do likewise to others um, because of what he's done for us. That's incredible. Stephen, thank you for your vulnerability, yeah. uh, for your courage. Uh, where... Um, where can we join the journey to be part of some of these solutions? Obviously pick up a copy of the book. Yep. Um, and does the book explain how we can participate or if, if people are, are hurting and in, in the process of needing help and needing healing? Yes. Yeah, there's um, there's a, uh, the postscript of the book kind of outlines that. Um, there's a couple of uh, immediate responses, I guess. One is, um, so we've set up uh, a nonprofit to, to handle proceeds, financial proceeds in the book, and then ultimately give those away. But then that nonprofit also serves as a platform for policy advocacy. And so um, we have drafted a petition that includes those 17 initiatives uh, addressed to the Secretary of Defense and, and the chairman of both Armed Services Committees. Um, to basically say, hey, we want to engage in a collaborative conversation to see these things happen. And so um, you can go to elliotfund.org, two L's, two T's, elliotfund.org, and you can sign that petition. Um, uh, we're, you don't have to give us any money. We're not even accepting donations. That's not the point. But um, just lending your voice if you believe those are changes you want to see happen. Um, and then we're also partnered with an organization um, called Reboot Combat Recovery, um, that is doing a, an amazing job of um, helping to facilitate um, really small group, in-home, peer-led um, uh, trauma healing. And so um, if, you're, uh, uh, if you're looking for, if you're a spouse, if you're um, you know, a veteran, if you're on active duty and you're saying, I feel alone, I need help, um, I would encourage you to, to check, check them out um, and talk to the folks at Reboot. Um, I know in the Puget Sound area, there's a lot of groups, Reboot groups that are already going. And um, they're operating, I think, over 200 groups in five different countries now and, and growing rapidly. And so that's, that's a critical community-based option. Um, and certainly, um, if you're in crisis, by all means, um, you know, the Veterans Crisis Hotline, the, the Suicide Prevention Hotline, um, you know, pick up the phone and call, talk to somebody. Um, you're not alone. Um, uh, I've been there. Uh, others have been there. And there's a lot of people um, who, uh, who would just love to help and, and love to listen, if nothing else. So those are some ways that you can, you can respond. Awesome. Hey. Thank you so much for your time. This Thank is you. uh, this is our first podcast. Yeah, and, uh, and uh, so stoked that that you are are the first reformer that we're featuring. <laughs> um, and uh, thank you for serving on our board of directors. Yeah, of and, course. Uh, yeah, we look forward to uh, uh, to uh, releasing this. Um, I want to thank uh, Jeff Marsh mm-hmm. for uh, helping us out. Uh, I want to thank uh, our friend Ryan Frederick, yes. Crux Watches, for for supporting this. Yes. And, uh, um, yeah, and again, thank you for um, just 
selflessly giving uh, your your narrative away. I, I see I see Jesus in that. Mm. Jesus was the master storyteller, and he mm. uh, he invited us into the narrative. And uh, I think you've done the same. So thank you, Stephen. Thank you, Joel. Yeah, brother. Appreciate it, man. All right, man. Mm-hmm.